Question 48 of Summa Theologica Tertia Pars, Treatise on the Saviour. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Summa Theologica Tertia Pars, Treatise on the Saviour, by St. Thomas Aquinas. Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 48. Of the Efficiency of Christ's Passion, in Six Articles. We now have to consider Christ's Passion as to its effect. First of all, as to the manner in which it was brought about, and secondly, as to the effect in itself. Under the first heading, there are six points for inquiry. First, whether Christ's passion brought about our salvation by way of merit. Second, whether it was by way of atonement. Third, whether it was by way of sacrifice. Fourth, whether it was by way of redemption. Fifth, whether it is proper to Christ to be the Redeemer. Sixth, whether the passion secured man's salvation efficiently. First article, whether Christ's passion brought about our salvation by way of merit. Objection one. It would seem that Christ's passion did not bring about our salvation by way of merit. For the sources of our sufferings are not within us. But no one merits or is appraised except for that whose principle lies within him. Therefore, Christ's passion wrought nothing by way of merit. Objection to further. From the beginning of his conception, Christ merited for himself and for us, as stated above, in question 9, article 4, and in question 34, article 3. But it is superfluous to merit over and over again what has been merited before. Therefore, by his passion, Christ did not merit our salvation. Objection 3 further. The source of merit is charity. But Christ's charity was not made greater by the passion than it was before. Therefore, he did not merit our salvation by suffering more than he had already. On the contrary, on the words of Philippians 2.9, Therefore God exalted him, etc., Augustine says in his commentary on the Gospel of John, The lowliness of the passion merited glory. Glory was the reward of lowliness. But he was glorified, not merely in himself, but likewise in his faithful ones, as he says himself in John 17.10. Therefore it appears that he merited the salvation of the faithful. I answer that, as stated above in question 7, articles 1 and 9, as well as in question 8, articles 1 and 5, grace was bestowed upon Christ not only as an individual, but inasmuch as he is the head of the church, so that it might overflow into his members. 
and therefore Christ's works are referred to himself and to his members in the same way as the works of any other man in a state of grace are referred to himself. But it is evident that whosoever suffers for justice's sake, provided that he be in a state of grace, merits his salvation thereby, according to Matthew 5.10. Blessed are they that suffer persecution for justice's sake. Consequently, Christ by his passion merited salvation, not only for himself, but likewise for all his members. Reply to Objection 1. Suffering, as such, is caused by an outward principle, but inasmuch as one bears it willingly, it has an inward principle. Reply to Objection 2. From the beginning of his conception, Christ merited our eternal salvation, but on our side there were some obstacles, whereby we were hindered from securing the effect of his preceding merits. Consequently, in order to remove such hindrances, it was necessary for Christ to suffer, as stated above in question 46, article 3. Reply to Objection 3. Christ's passion has a special effect which his preceding merits did not possess, not on account of greater charity, but because of the nature of the work, which was suitable for such an effect, as is clear from the arguments brought forward above all the fittingness of Christ's passion, in question 46, articles 3 and 4. Second article. Whether Christ's passion brought about our salvation by way of atonement. Objection 1. It would seem that Christ's passion did not bring about our salvation by way of atonement. For it seems that to make the atonement devolves on him who commits the sin, as is clear in the other parts of penance, because he who has done the wrong must grieve over it and confess it. But Christ never sinned, according to First Peter 2.22, who did not sin. Therefore, he made no atonement by his personal suffering. Objection to further. No atonement is made to another by committing a graver offense. But in Christ's passion, the gravest of all offenses was perpetrated, because those who slew him sinned most grievously, as stated above in question 47, article 6. Consequently, it seems that atonement could not be made to God by Christ's passion. Objection 3 further. Atonement implies equality with the trespass, since it is an act of justice. But Christ's passion does not appear equal to all the sins of the human race, because Christ did not suffer in his Godhead, but in his flesh, according to 1 Peter 4.1. Christ, therefore, having suffered in the flesh. Now the soul, which is the subject of sin, is of greater account than the flesh. Therefore, Christ did not atone for our sins by his passion. 
On the contrary, it is written in Psalm 68, verse 5, in Christ's person, Then did I pay that which I took not away. But he has not paid who has not fully atoned. Therefore, it appears that Christ, by his suffering, has fully atoned for our sins. I answer that. He properly atones for an offense who offers something which the offended one loves equally, or even more than he detested the offense. But by suffering out of love and obedience, Christ gave more to God than was required to compensate for the offense of the whole human race. First of all, because of the exceeding charity from which he suffered. Secondly, on account of the dignity of his life which he laid down in atonement, for it was the life of one who was God and man. Thirdly, on account of the extent of the passion and the greatness of the grief endured, as stated above in question 46, article 6. And therefore Christ's passion was not only a sufficient but a superabundant atonement for the sins of the human race, according to 1 John 2.2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Reply to Objection 1. The head and members are as one mystic person, and therefore Christ's satisfaction belongs to all the faithful as being his members. Also, in so far as any two men are one in charity, the one can atone for the other as shall be shown later, in the Supplementum, question 13, article 2. But the same reason does not hold good of confession and contrition, because atonement consists in an outward action, for which helps may be used, among which friends are to be computed. Reply to Objection 2. Christ's love was greater than his slayer's malice, and therefore the value of his passion in atoning surpassed the murderous guilt of those who crucified him, so much so that Christ's suffering was sufficient and superabundant atonement for his murderous crime. Reply to Objection 3. The dignity of Christ's flesh is not to be estimated solely from the nature of flesh, but also from the person assuming it. Namely, inasmuch as it was God's flesh, the result of which was that it was of infinite worth. Third Article whether Christ's passion operated by way of sacrifice. Objection 1. It would seem that Christ's passion did not operate by way of sacrifice. For the truth should correspond with the figure. But human flesh was never offered up in the sacrifices of the old law, which were figures of Christ. Nay, such sacrifices were reputed as impious, according to Psalm 105, verse 38. And they shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and of their daughters, which they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. 
it seems therefore the christ's passion cannot be called a sacrifice objection to further augustine says in on the city of god ten that a visible sacrifice is a sacrament that is a sacred sign of an invisible sacrifice now christ's passion is not a sign but rather the thing signified by other signs therefore it seems that christ's passion is not a sacrifice objection three further whoever offers sacrifice performs some sacred rite as the very word sacrifice shows but those men who slew christ did not perform any sacred act but rather wrought a great wrong therefore christ's passion was rather a malefice than a sacrifice on the contrary the apostle says in ephesians five two he delivered himself up for us an oblation and a sacrifice to god for an odor of sweetness i answer that a sacrifice properly so called is something done for that honor which is properly due to god in order to appease him and hence it is that augustine says in on the city of god ten a true sacrifice is every good work done in order that we may cling to god in holy fellowship yet referred to that consummation of happiness wherein it can be truly blessed but as is added in the same place christ offered himself for us in the passion and this voluntary enduring of the passion was most acceptable to god as coming from charity therefore it is manifest that christ's passion was a true sacrifice moreover as augustine says farther on in the same book the primitive sacrifices of the holy fathers were many and various signs of this true sacrifice one being prefigured by many in the same way as a single concept of thought is expressed in many words in order to commend it without tediousness and as augustine observes in on the trinity for since there are four things to be noted in every sacrifice to wit to whom it is offered by whom it is offered what is offered and for whom it is offered that the same one true mediator reconciling us with god through the peace sacrifice might continue to be one with him to whom he offered it might be one with them for whom he offered it and might himself be the offerer and what he offered reply to objection one although the truth answers to the figure in some respects yet it does not in all since the truth must go beyond the figure therefore the figure of this sacrifice in which christ's flesh is offered was flesh right fittingly not the flesh of men but of animals as denoting christ's and this is a most perfect sacrifice first of all since being flesh of human nature it is fittingly offered for men and is partaken of by them under the sacrament 
secondly, because being passible and mortal, it was fit for immolation. Thirdly, because being sinless, it had virtue to cleanse from sins. Fourthly, because being the offerer's own flesh, it was acceptable to God on account of his charity in offering up his own flesh. Hence it is that Augustine says in On the Trinity 4, What else could be so fittingly partaken of by men or offered up for men as human flesh? What else could be so appropriate for this immolation as mortal flesh? What else is there so clean for cleansing mortals as the flesh born in the womb without fleshly concupiscence and coming from a virginal womb? What could be so favorably offered and accepted as the flesh of our sacrifice, which was made the body of our priest? Reply to Objection 2 Augustine is speaking there of visible, figurative sacrifices, and even Christ's passion, although denoted by other figurative sacrifices, is yet a sign of something to be observed by us, according to 1 Peter 4.1. Christ, therefore, having suffered in the flesh, be you also armed with the same thought. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sins, that now he may live the rest of his time in the flesh, not after the desires of men, but according to the will of God. Reply to Objection 3 Christ's passion was indeed a malefice on his slayer's part, but on his own it was the sacrifice of one suffering out of charity. Hence it is Christ who is said to have offered this sacrifice and not the executioners. Fourth article. Whether Christ's passion brought about our salvation by way of redemption. Objection 1. It would seem that Christ's passion did not affect our salvation by way of redemption. For no one purchases or redeems what never ceased to belong to him. But men never ceased to belong to God, according to Psalm 23.1. The earth is the Lord's, and the fullness thereof, the world and all they that dwell therein. Therefore, it seems that Christ did not redeem us by his passion. Objection to further, as Augustine says in On the Trinity 13, the devil had to be overthrown by Christ's justice. But justice requires that the man who has treacherously seized another's property shall be deprived of it, because deceit and cunning should not benefit anyone, as even human laws declare. Consequently, since the devil by treachery deceived and subjugated to himself man, who is God's creature, it seems that man ought not to be rescued from his power by way of redemption. Objection 3 further. Whoever buys or redeems an object pays the price to the holder. But it was not to the devil who held us in bondage that Christ paid his blood as the price of our redemption. Therefore, Christ did not redeem us by his passion. 
On the contrary, it is written in 1 Peter 1.18, You were not redeemed with corruptible things, as gold or silver from your vain conversation of the tradition of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb unspotted and undefiled. And in Galatians 3.13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. Now he is said to be a curse for us inasmuch as he suffered upon a tree, as stated above in question 46, article 4. Therefore, he did redeem us by his passion. I answer that. Man was held captive on account of sin in two ways. First of all, by the bondage of sin, because, as we read in John 8.34, Whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. And in Second Peter 2.19, By whom a man is overcome, of the same also he is the slave. Since then, the devil had overcome man by inducing him to sin, man was subject to the devil's bondage. Secondly, as to the debt of punishment, to the payment of which man was held fast by God's justice, and this too is a kind of bondage, since it savors of bondage for a man to suffer what he does not wish, just as it is the free man's condition to ply himself to what he wills. Since then, Christ's passion was a sufficient and a superabundant atonement for the sin and the debt of the human race. It was as a price at the cost of which we were freed from both obligations. For the atonement by which one satisfies for self or another is called the price, by which he ransoms himself or someone else from sin and its penalty, according to Daniel 4.24. Redeem thou thy sins with alms. Now Christ made satisfaction, not by giving money or any of the sort, but by bestowing what was of greatest price, himself, for us. And therefore, Christ's passion is called our redemption. Reply to Objection 1. Man is said to belong to God in two ways. First of all, insofar as he comes under God's power, in which way he never ceased to belong to God, according to Daniel 4.22. The Most High ruleth over the kingdom of men, and giveth it to whomsoever he will. Secondly, by being united to him in charity, according to Romans 8.9. If any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. In the first way, then, man never ceased to belong to God, but in the second way he did cease because of sin. And therefore, insofar as he was delivered from sin by the satisfaction of Christ's passion, he is said to be redeemed by the passion of Christ. Reply to Objection 2 Man, by sinning, became the bondsman both of God and of the devil. Through guilt he had offended God, 
and put himself under the devil by consenting to him. And consequently, he did not become God's servant on account of his guilt, but rather by withdrawing from God's service. He, by God's just permission, fell under the devil's servitude on account of the offense perpetrated. But as to the penalty, man was chiefly bound to God as his sovereign judge, and to the devil as his torturer, according to Matthew 5.25. Lest perhaps the adversary deliver thee to the judge, and the judge deliver thee to the officer. That is, to the relentless avenging angel, as Chrysostom says in his homily number 11. Consequently, although after deceiving man, the devil, so far as in him lay, held him unjustly in bondage as to both sin and penalty, still it was just that man should suffer it, God so permitting it as to the sin and ordaining it as to the penalty. And therefore, Justice required man's redemption with regard to God, but not with regard to the devil. Reply to Objection 3. Because, with regard to God, redemption was necessary for man's deliverance, but not with regard to the devil. The price had to be paid not to the devil, but to God and therefore Christ is said to have paid the price of our redemption, his own precious blood, not to the devil, but to God. Fifth article. Whether it is proper to Christ to be the Redeemer. Objection 1. It would seem that it is not proper to Christ to be the Redeemer because it is written in Psalm 30, verse 6, Thou hast redeemed me, O Lord, the God of truth. But to be the Lord God of truth belongs to the entire Trinity. Therefore, it is not proper to Christ. Objection to further. He is said to redeem who pays the price of redemption. But God the Father gave his Son in redemption for our sins, as is written in Psalm 110, verse 9, The Lord hath sent redemption to his people. Upon which the gloss adds, That is Christ who gives redemption to captives. Therefore, not only Christ, but the Father also redeemed us. Objection 3 further not only Christ's passion, but also that of other saints conduce to our salvation, according to Colossians 1.24. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you, and fill up those things that are wanting of the sufferings of Christ, in my own flesh for his body, which is the church. Therefore, the title of Redeemer belongs not only to Christ, but also to the other saints. On the contrary, it is written in Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. But only Christ was made a curse for us. Therefore, only Christ ought to be called our Redeemer. 
I answer that, for someone to redeem, two things are required, namely, the act of paying and the price paid. For if in redeeming something a man pays a price which is not his own, but another's, he is not said to be the chief redeemer, but rather the other is, whose price it is. Now Christ's blood, or his bodily life, which is in the blood, is the price of our redemption, according to Leviticus 17 verses 11 through 14. And that life he paid. Hence both of these belong immediately to Christ as man, but to the Trinity as to the first and remote cause to whom Christ's life belonged as to its first author, and from whom Christ received the inspiration of suffering for us. Consequently, it is proper to Christ as man to be the Redeemer immediately, although the redemption may be ascribed to the whole Trinity as its first cause. Reply to Objection 1. A gloss explains the text thus. Thou, O Lord God of truth, hast redeemed me in Christ, crying out, Lord, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And so redemption belongs immediately to the man Christ, but principally to God. Reply to Objection 2. The man Christ paid the price of our redemption immediately, but at the command of the Father as the original author. Reply to Objection 3. The sufferings of the saints are beneficial to the Church, as by way not of redemption, but of example and exhortation, according to Second Corinthians 1.6. Whether we be in tribulation, it is for your exhortation and salvation. Sixth article. Whether Christ's passion brought about our salvation efficiently. Objection 1. It would seem that Christ's passion did not bring about our salvation efficiently. For the efficient cause of our salvation is the greatness of the divine power, according to Isaiah 59.1. Behold, the hand of the Lord is not shortened that it cannot save. But Christ was crucified through weakness, as it is written in Second Corinthians 13.4. Therefore, Christ's passion did not bring about our salvation efficiently. Objection to further. No corporeal agency acts efficiently except by contact. Hence even Christ cleansed the leper by touching him in order to show that his flesh had saving power, as Chrysostom says. But Christ's passion could not touch all mankind. Therefore, it could not efficiently bring about the salvation of all men. Objection 3 further. It does not seem to be consistent for the same agent to operate by way of merit and by way of efficiency. Since he who merits awaits the result from someone else. But it was by way of merit that Christ's passion accomplished our salvation. Therefore, it was not by way of efficiency. 
On the contrary, it is written in 1 Corinthians 1.18 that the word of the cross to them that are saved is the power of God. But God's power brings about our salvation efficiently. Therefore, Christ's passion on the cross accomplished our salvation efficiently. I answer that. There is a twofold efficient agency, namely, the principal and the instrumental. Now the principal efficient cause of man's salvation is God. But since Christ's humanity is the instrument of the Godhead, as stated above in question 43, article 2, therefore all Christ's actions and sufferings operate instrumentally in virtue of his Godhead for the salvation of men. Consequently, then, Christ's passion accomplishes man's salvation efficiently. Reply to Objection 1. Christ's passion in relation to his flesh is consistent with the infirmity which he took upon himself, but in relation to the Godhead it draws infinite might from it, according to 1 Corinthians one twenty-five. The weakness of God is stronger than men, because Christ's weakness, inasmuch as he is God, has a might exceeding all human power. Reply to Objection 2. Christ's passion, although corporeal, has yet a spiritual effect from the Godhead united, and therefore it secures its efficacy by spiritual contact, namely, by faith and the sacraments of faith, as the Apostle says in Romans 3.25, whom God hath proposed to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. Reply to Objection 3. Christ's passion, according as it is compared with his Godhead, operates in an efficient manner. But insofar as it is compared with the will of Christ's soul, it acts in a meritorious manner. Considered as being within Christ's very flesh, it acts by way of satisfaction, inasmuch as we are liberated by it from the debt of punishment while inasmuch as we are freed from the servitude of guilt, it acts by way of redemption. But in so far as we are reconciled with God, it acts by way of sacrifice, as shall be shown further on in question 49. End of question 48 Read by Michael Shane Craig Lambert, L.C.